I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Morvedra is one of these interesting grapes with multiple identities. It has three main incarnations throughout the world. As Morvedra, it's a mainstay of southern France. As Mataro, the Catalan version of its name, it thrives usually as a blending component in the GSMs of Australia, and it was also an important grape in mid-20th century California. As Monastrel, it's an extremely popular grape in Spain, where you'll find it's widely planted. Monastrel has monastic etymology, so this was possibly a grape once cultivated for religious purposes. Mataro and Morvedra are both names from Spanish cities. And it's probably a Spanish grape, where its ur seed likely sprouted in Valencia in the 14th century. Today, as Morvedra, the grape is pretty well known in southern France, where it likely arrived sometime during the 1500s to the 1700s. It probably came to France from the Spanish town by the same name, which has since been renamed. And in the last 400 years or so, the grape made itself invaluable to the wines from Bendol, which had been enjoyed by royal courts in pre-Revolution France. Morvedra, with its late-pushing buds and slow-ripening fruit, can mature ideally in Bendol. This is because Morvedra likes a long, hot growing season and a winter that's not too intense. You'll find it growing in a band along the Mediterranean coast in areas that fits this climate to a T. If you search for other Mediterranean climates, you'll find prized plantings of Morvedra throughout the globe, like in Barossa in California. In particular, you'll find really neat Morvedra pockets in the Sierra Nevada foothills of California, where gold rush opportunists recognized a climate that might suit Mediterranean grape varieties. There, as in Australia, it was long known as Mataro, and has more recently begun to be celebrated as Morvedra. Keep listening to hear more from one winemaker who has helped shape California's perspective of Morvedra. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. 
Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Hardy Wallace returns to the show of Dirty and Rowdy. Nice to see you. Hey, great to see you as well. How you been? Fantastic. Really good. So you were here a few years ago, but I feel like a lot has changed for for you, for California, for maybe my personal understanding of the Mouvedra grape variety. So I thought we might have you back on and, and talk a little bit about that. I appreciate that. Glad to be back. So it is interesting because you do source the same grape variety from so many different areas. So in terms of narrowing in on site specificity in different regions of California, but also narrowing in on different faucets of Mouvedra as a grape variety, what would you say about that? Wow, that's a, that's a big question, but I have a big answer for you right here. So no, I, I think first of all, that is kind of our, our reason for being is that we do a number of different things. I mean, for people to know, I mean, we focus on Mervedra as a variety in California on radically different soil types. And I think for us, the whole thing has always been this trying to find like really like Mervedra at its core, but also really thinking of it as an instrument where how does that reflect soil? And I think going back to, you know, what we find with it is, first of all, the, the thing that always gets me, and it's, it can be this, but when people always talk about Mervedra as the savage, wild, intense, unruly character, and if you've tasted the dirty and rowdy wines, we're usually like the antithesis of that. And I think some of it is both the site selection, obviously, you know, we're working with sites that especially there's a lot of higher altitude sites that maintain really great acidity. There's sites that ripen at you know, moderate levels of sugars that keep really good acid like that are on limestone and granite. And I think we're able to do these really gentle fermentations without having to get in extractions, without having to get things at 26, 27, 28 bricks. So for us, I think what we've found in the past seven vintages working with Mervedra is really trying to find this like it's raspberry, it's fresh strawberry, it's got these herbal, you know, components to it that are, you know, not like, you know, fernet or digestive herbal, but they're like, oh my gosh, that's sage and cinnamon and, you know, chaparral and things like that, that are just these beautiful undertones. And I think trying to see that as, you know, the purity of, of Merved, let alone like, you know, it can be, you know, beastie, it can be highly reductive, it can be meaty and things like that. But I think what we've discovered is that it has a really just, I mean, beautiful, pure fruit driven side as well. And why do you think we didn't see that so much in the past from other wineries or other places? I, I think Mervedra is a grape that 
I mean, it's prone to letting it hang as long, as long as possible. I mean, it, it's got really thick skins. It, you know, it grows in spots that are super hot. You know, if we wanted to hang it out till it was 28 bricks, um, we could. If we wanted to beat the hell out of it up um, and create something that are just like really like incredibly thick, heavy structured wines, which a lot of those wines are really beautiful as well. I mean, it definitely can take that. What I find beautiful about Morved is, you know, it's one of these grapes that I think has that beautiful spectrum from rosé to higher octane, powerful wines. And I think maybe the examples that we've seen mostly in the U.S. are more of the higher octane, higher power, higher tannin uh, wines. And not very many people had ever explored that softer side except on rosé. Um, why is that? I have no idea. But, I mean, we, we, we mistakenly, I feel like, fell into it. You know, that was how we started, not knowing any better. And that's how we've continued. And now You mean the softer side, pursuing yeah, that. Absolutely. Our first vintage, you know, in 2010, you know, starting to gently, you know, extract basically whole cluster. I, I even str struggled to say partial carbonic, but having a lot of whole berry fermentation, you know, super gentle one or two punch downs a day um, and just more or less wetting the cap versus crushing things up. I think with that, we were able to find this purity at least our purity that we that we recognize in it. Um, some people may be like, oh, that <laughs> that ain't no Mervedra right there. And, um, well, it's our Mervedra. It's the one that we found. And it's obviously, if you've tasted a lot of the wines before, there is that commonality that runs through, you know, that pure, like, essence of fruit that's there, minus all that weight and all that heaviness that we often refer, you know, we often associate with the Mervedra grape. Because you do put Mouvedra on the label. So have you had people come to the grape variety in your bottles and say like, huh, I was, I was expecting a heftier wine. Here. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, I always love when people tell, tell me they throw it into blind tastings because they're like, oh, you would never guess. So many people would never guess that wine. As Mouvedra, they're going to lean more towards Gamay or sometimes even like a Trousseau or, you know, lighter styled reds. And for me though, it's, if you've tasted a lot of Mervedra based wines, like backing up just a second, I mean, earlier this year, um, I went to Bandal with uh, actually John Lockwood from Enfield and our friend Chris Scanlon, who sells wine for Amy Atwood in California and has his own project coming up called Pain and Glory Cellars. The three of us went to Bandal for about a week and we're tasting through. And what I really appreciated, something that Chris and John had said after tasting through a number of things, it was they were like, it wasn't how different the wines that we were tasting back and forth were, but it was how similar they were. And for me, at first, I was scratching my head. I was like, wow, like how the heck can <laughs> you can even actually compare these two creatures? And they really just dialed in on that purity of fruit. And that, you know, all the wines seem, those Mervedra-based wines, whether it's theirs or ours, seem to have that really just shining core of that kind of strawberry, raspberry, like with slight herbaceousness like surrounding it. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it's there if you, if you look for it, but I think we obviously come with a lighter package. So, so were there things that when you were in Bandola that you said, huh, I hadn't thought about that before? Uh, yeah. I mean, so much, a lot of it was looking at vinification is so different there. You know, almost everything's destemmed. Things are going far more reductive in you know, in style. And part of that, you know, both also in that style, but also going into much larger format casks. And, you know, I think 
What I appreciated with it more than anything, though, was the balance of the larger weight wines. So you're able to see wines that were incredibly powerful, incredibly intense, and often much higher in alcohol, but that were so down the line balanced. And talking about ripeness and talking about acid levels and talking about why things might be high 14s or 15% alcohol, it made me think, not rethink what we do, um, because we have what we do and we have, I think, what our sites you know, give us. But it also made me rethink like Mervedra as a variety where I'm always leaning more towards that light side. And here's these huge, powerful wines that still had a freshness to them. And they weren't just weight and alcohol, but there was still that, you know, lack of better terms, there was a, a chi, there was that life force that was going through them. And it was really beautiful. So it just, it just made me rethink some of those, uh, some of those wines, especially in their youth. Because I've always loved old Bandol. I've always loved really, you know, you pop open a, you know, 89 Tompier Capacitor right now. And it's like, I mean, it's freaky. It's so delicious. And, but you have a 2013 Tompier right now. And, you know, your initial thought was like, oh, I I can't touch it. And you're like, well, you know what? There's a freshness to that wine right now that maybe it's higher in octane or weight. But man, that's a, that's a pretty wine. The question then is, could they make the kind of wines that you make if they wanted to with the material that they're getting in the place? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they could. Um, maybe stylistically they might, but also looking at soil types, you know, a lot of it, if they are truly needing to achieve certain levels of ripeness to get that, you know, a lot of those vineyards are on limestone and clay, heavy limestone, heavy clay. And if they're, they're maintaining, you know, 3.0 pH on, you know, big red wine, and they're still at 21 bricks or 22 bricks, you have to push that because you're going to make the most burly, tannic, aggressive, unpleasant wine unless you actually get both, you know, those sugars up and those pHs up. So I don't know without having worked there, I, I don't know what, what's capable there because a lot of those soils are so different than what we work on in California. Um, the only thing that we have that's at all somewhat close is the Antle Vineyard, which that's the vineyard that we work with that has the highest amount of limestone on it. We're actually the only amount of limestone in it in any of our vineyards. And often we're watching that vineyard and that is our darkest fruited flavored Mervedra. And it is the one that we feel like we also have to push a little further to get that shift right with the acids and the fruit and everything due to the chemistry in the soil. And it's also the one you tend to release a little later, right? Absolutely. So that one always gets like another year in bottle. So kind of going back to what you said about the bandol that, you know, a lot of people think that they need more time. Yeah. Like I, I, I think it would be a disservice to that vineyard for us. Um, our antle vineyard bottling, I think it would be a disservice to folks to release it too early or some of the other ones charm. Part of it is in freshness. I think antles and it's, and it's elegance. And I want to make sure that gets to somebody, um, you know, like all of us, we were going to release wines when we need money versus necessarily when they are, you know, get ready to be consumed. But we want to make sure that it's in a spot that at least like right now you can drink the 14. It's a baby, but it still, it delivers pleasure and there's an elegance to it. So I think one of the things that literally drove you, because it's a lot of driving, but <laughs> drove you to different soil types in different places in California was just that there's not a lot of Mouvedra planted. And so you kind of went where the, the grapes were. We do work with so many small pockets of Mervedra. So when we've got the eight Mervedra vineyards that we have, very few of these blocks you know, are over an acre and a half. 
you know, a lot of them are in the sub one acre blocks. And I think what you find with them on these different soil types is that little change, that little shift in perception of, say, Skinner White Oak Flats, for instance. Uh, this is a vineyard that's owned by the Skinner family who have their own winery up in El Dorado County. They have two estate vineyards. White Oak Flats is down lower in the Sierra Foothills. It's at about 1,300 feet. There is decomposed granite, but there is a lot of clay in this vineyard. And what I find with that clay is like the tone of those aromatics, the amount of really floral type, like purple floral aromatics that you get out of that is completely unlike anything else that we have. This is also one of those other vineyards that surprisingly, like you'd look at it and think that it's going to ripen. It's like our hottest, it's one of our hottest sites. It's, it's on clay with a little granite, it's flat as a pancake. And you're like, oh man, this is a vineyard you got to pick in August. And often we're waiting for this vineyard last week of September, first week of October to actually try to get this vineyard like above 21 and a half bricks. Um, but what comes out of it on these soils is the most, I, I think it's one of our most unique sites. It's so floral, it's so aromatic. Then you contrast that that against, say, antel, um, which is so savory, which is so like spice-driven, so cinnamon. Then you look at that against Evangelo, which is this, you know, these 136-year-old vines that is this cornucopia of like, I mean, of fruit, of earth, of like, you know, rocket ships, unicorns. I mean, it's something that is so like, you know, put on the, you know, the space helmet and fill it with, you know, tutti frutti and you're like, you're ready to roll. And I think what we're learning after this time is that these soils, you know, at, at their core, there's still this little bit of merved, but at these soil types, there's so much interesting nuance that's going around them. Shake Ridge with those volcanic and quartz soils that has also some granite in there. There's that almost like that carbon that comes out, you know, every year that is just like red fruit surrounded by this almost carbon aromatic that's just like blind for me. That that's almost one of the easiest to pull, you know, to pull out because it's just it just is what it is. And you know, we're really learning, you know, after now you know, again seven vintages, we're learning that um, you know what these personalities are what to both encourage in them and so what we know kind of what their traits are but also like how not to fight them either and i think that like when we first started out you know there's an idea of wines that we enjoy you know i i enjoy a lot of wines that are high in acid that are refreshing that are you know 12 and a half percent alcohol or something like that and guess what there's sites that don't do that you know regardless of us being dirty and rowdy in our style that's a disservice to some of these vineyards to work with so like a site like Shake Ridge, yeah, Shake Ridge requires us to let it hang a little longer. Antle does. But a vineyard like when we were working with Santa Barbara Highlands and you know, that one, you know, that's one of those vineyards that's like, please take me off now. Like the charm that and the, the beauty here is in red fruit and its, you know, youthfulness and this kind of the the layer of like kind of savory aromatics that goes around that versus this core of carbon, this core of like chalky, you know, aromatics that might be around, you know, Shake Ridge or the kind of the crunchiness of Skinner Stony Creek. So I think as we're learning now, it's really kind of settling in to see like, hey, each one of these wines in vineyards lives on this spectrum. And this spectrum starting from, you know, young and fruity or fresh and fresh and crunchy to actually starting to get a little bit in that that beefier, weightier, which for us, anytime I describe anything beefy and weighty, people are like, oh, so you're talking about a medium-bodied wine. And I'm, well, I mean, it's, it's on our relative scale. 
So I, I think that's something that, you know, we're really learning with these different sites and with these different areas in California. And I, I think that's something that I always think is a gift. Like we, though I drive way too much every vintage, um, you know, I was dubbing myself a windshield winemaker, um, this vintage, because it's just, I mean, I was like doing a couple, like I felt like I'd had more 500 mile days, this vintage than any other vintage. And though you've got, you know, sometimes a four hour drive to spend an hour and 20 minutes sampling on a vineyard or walking through the real like gift of that is to be like one of the few winemakers in California that gets to experience that much diversity focused on a single variety. And I hope I can process all that information and um, not just, you know, enjoy, hopefully I enjoy it in the moment. I definitely do. But I hope I'm able every year to process more and more of that information. So it's more valuable to me the next year and the year after. And hopefully if we have people starting to work with us and things like that, that they can continue to be handed on because there isn't a wealth of knowledge for this grape in California. There are people that have been working with it for a long time. There are people who are very obviously clued into the sites that they're working with. It's not something that we have the same knowledge of, of say, Cabernet Sauvignon, of Zinfandel, of things that people have focused on as a single variety or as a main variety for the past 120 years or so. So to us, I still feel like though people have been making Merved for years and years in California, it's still there's a pioneering spirit to it. And it's nice to be part of that. Do you get the sense that you're always working with the same vine material? Yeah and no. You know, rootstock may change a lot. There is a lot of similar vine material out there. We're dealing on a lot of our younger sites. We're dealing primarily with a Tablas clone. And so there's very, there, there is not a lot of diversity. There are several Mervedra clones that are available. And we do have now four old vine sites that who knows what those, that material is. But there is a lot of Tablas clone Merved and, you know, or people call it clone four or, there's a lot of the same plant material out there. And at first I thought about that a little bit, wondering how limiting is that for me? And, um, you know, I could look at it both ways. I'm like, oh man, like we're, you know, we're shackled by this clone out here. It's holding me, holding me down. But at the same point, in a way, when I think of what we're doing and what we're looking at is similar vinification methods on radically different soils. And if we have similar plant material, if our goal truly is to show that that soil above all else, it does give us, um, I don't, there is an advantage there, whether it's the right clone for the place, I, I can't tell you yet, but there is an advantage to that. We do have a block that's going in um, of Morvedra that's getting grafted over this year to a new site. And it did come time to look at clonal material. And I actually did choose the same clone we've been working with. Part of it is because I know it so well, and it, I do think there's a beauty to it. And if it's like, if it ain't broke, like why fix it? I mean, it really, it's, it seems to fit what we do in our method. That I think is something that has been a happy circumstance to find. But do you yeah. think that that might be another reason why bandol technique isn't the same as your technique? Like they might be using different fine material? There, there may be. Um, you know, there's definitely some sites that have had cuttings come over, but... I think vine material without a doubt, but I really think more than anything, it's soil based. And that is true. Like we're, again, we're in a spot where we can ripen Merved easily. And in most sites, we're fighting to keep pHs low. We're not fighting in most sites and in most vintages versus fighting to actually get pHs up. 
um, Mervedra is not a low pH grape. Where say Pinot Noir is actually, you know, rel- on a relative scale, they're you know kind of talking cats and dogs here. You know, if you know if we're whole clustering, you know, and we're picking Mervedra, you know, we're psyched if we're getting it like you know under three six. You know, a Pinot Noir producer might be like, oh, "Dude, we shanked it!" <laughs> like, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is Mervedra. It's a totally different creature." So, I mean, we're really conscious that that doesn't get too high. Uh, in most vintages, and I think in Bandol and a lot of spots in southern France, due to the soil composition, they're actually fighting to to actually get these acids to drop and to actually uh, raise their pHs where I'm afraid of them getting, I need mine to come down. I think that hypothetically is a huge difference in the style. I mean, maybe those folks just lack the big wines. <laughs> it's just like, I'm, I'm one that's, um, I would, I, I hesitate to say there should be any change to something that people have been doing beautifully for years and years. What I do is very different, but it doesn't mean that, um, you know, I, I've got so much respect for those wines. I, I hope mine will live one-tenth of the life of some of those wines. Do you find a closer analogy to some other parts of the world? Like, do you see Mouvedra in maybe the Southern Rhone or maybe Australia as more akin to what you're dealing with? Not yet. You know, I'll see it with maybe some other producers in California. So I think some of the Mervedras that Hank is making at La Clarine Farms, there's definitely, you know, the wines are, our wines are unique from each other, but we both aim for that kind of, that freshness and that purity. Donkey and Goat just released a new one um, this year. It's, it's called the Twinkle. It's just like so bright and starry that it's like, whoa, like that's, there's some freshness there. In uh, Rousselon, there's a producer, uh, Domaine Yo-Yo, and, um, Oh my God, her Mervedra-based wine is like, I mean, it's shocking. And then obviously the king to me for like, for me for Mervedra is uh, Eric Fifferling. I mean, the Langlore, like the Jad. I I mean, I I have a hard time talking about it. Like gets me like, I need to sit up in my seat. It really is that to me that captures at least in a way that all that purity, all that texture all that soil, but in such a delicate, such a gentle framework that's still structured, that's still nervy, that still has tannin, but man, it has grace, it has elegance, it has electricity behind it. And that to me, probably outside of the new world, the wines that I've found that were the most similar would be the Langlore, the Fifferling uh, Vejad Cuvée, which is mostly Mervedra-based, and then this Domaine Yo-Yo that I've had out of the Ruslan. And they have that texture, they have that purity, again, that kind of life force and energy that is like just vibrating through them. But yet at the same point, they're just it's not just a glue-glue wine. It's got structure and integrity and depth. And those are probably the two Cuvées that I've tasted the most out of the old world that I thought were the most similar to what we do. So when you are at Langor, what did you see? As far as fermentation, it's such a gentle fermentation. It's much more carbonic than what we do. Um, so the wines are starting out at a much lighter body, much lighter stature. Then you look at the soils that they're working off of there. I mean, it really, I, I mean, it is just crunch town. I mean, I, I think some of our soils are, you know, beautifully rocky and you've got chunks of quartz chunks of granite chunks of limestone gravel or whatever but you're looking at some of these spots and you're just on like basically looks like you know the the beach in nice or something like that it's just pure stones all the way across you're like what the heck are you even dealing with and i i think what 
Fifferling is just such a master of is working with these such incredibly intense soils and making such beautiful, light, elegant wines from them. I feel like we're really gentle as well, but his is even more so. And I think you can taste the weight in the wines. I mean, his wines are much lighter than ours on most vintages. Sometimes the Lorac might be a little heavier, which is more Grenache based. What's the fermentation vessel there? Yeah, so most of them are going to be in the concrete, just the, you know, the, the rectangular open top concrete tank. In terms of the farming, now that you've visited some different areas where Move Edgers Classic and you visited and had a lot of experience over vintages with several mm-hmm. sites in the United States, what do you think some of the prereqs are for a good Move Edgers site beyond soil? Like, does it need to be windy? Does it need to be dry? That's tough because, I mean, soil is the most important, but I think beyond that, where we have found the, I think, the most amount of success and where I think that in California where we can do so well with it is, you know, everyone talks about how hard Mervedra is to ripen. Um, yeah, if we planted it in like Occidental, I think it would be really tough to ripen. Like, that, 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 you know, some, some place like in Green Valley could be challenging. But I think at the same point, most of California is so arid and so dry that where I can think where we can find its advantages are at least to work in the style that we do is at elevation. So when we start working with sites like Shake Ridge is, you know, at 2000, Skinner Stony Creek's at 2600, Alder Springs is at 2300, that we no longer work the Santa Barbara Highlands Vineyard, that was 3200 feet. Um, what I think we're finding in these higher elevation, warmer climate sites is we're getting these super, super warm days. So we're getting these, you know, the ability to ripen so, so well during the day. And then we have that steep diurnal shift and that's where we're able to preserve acidity. And what Mervedra also, how that excels there too, is because a lot of times at these higher elevation sites, one of the things you're really worried about is frost. So with Mervedra, Unlike, you know, a lot of other grape varieties, it's, it's really slow, you know, for bud break and everything. So we're able to, you know, you're pushing out often, you know, a couple weeks later than you would for, say, Grenache, pushing out later than you would for, obviously, for Pinot, Cab, and things like that. So we're able usually to dodge that frost bullet, um, knock on wood, in a lot of places. In terms of farming, I mean, I know you deal with people who have different vineyard sites, have different vineyard management techniques, but yeah. have you seen vineyard management that works or doesn't work or that you're like, oh, well, I'm a believer in that or I'm not a believer in that when it comes to pruning? or Yeah, so of the eight vineyards, three are head trained and just those all are the old vineyards. So we've got Rosewood that's about 96 years old. We've got Evangelo over 130 years old. And then we just picked up working with the Enns Vineyard and that is about 96 years old. That pruning does really, really well on those old vines. All those tend to be really warm spots. The elevation at all those spots is very, very low. So they're the antithesis of what I was just talking about with the high elevation, snappy acids. These are hot sites that kind of bake in the sun. And with that uh, head training, I, I think one thing that they do really well at is provide a lot of shade and a lot of dappled light. So the fruit zone is, you know, usually a lot more covered by the canopy. And I think things move a little bit slower the vine age has a lot to do with that as well, but I think that head trained with the canopy, um, you know, really protecting that fruit zone does really, really well. With the other vineyards, though, what we've realized is that it's actually keeping, always keeping a little bit of a heavier canopy. You know, we're not going to go through and heavily leaf things, you know, though we'll, the, the shade side and the sun side will be a little bit different, but minimally. 
but it's still keeping a full canopy on things. It's also keeping a fairly heavy crop load. So I think as you know, we do have some sites that naturally you know produce a very meager yield. But on some of the sites that I love the best, it is when we're pushing plus four tons an acre. It is, you know, Mervedra produces a fairly big cluster. And I want things to slow down out there because not only do we want to pick it at, um, you know, moderate bricks where it has some freshness to it and some great acidity, but I still want to get that hang time for it. So it's, you know, it's not shocking for me to have, you know, one of my favorite Mervedras each year to come off at almost five tons an acre. Where if we were dealing with Pinot Noir, if we're dealing with Chardonnay, you'd be like, that's insane. Like, you know, what are you making? Like, you know, you know, box wine or whatever. It's, you know, for us, it's like, no. Like, then you taste those wines and like, if I tell you what the yield, you know, the tonnage per acre, you're like, you know, you, you know, most people would shoot me. So I, I think, yeah, on the younger vines, it's keeping that little bit of, you know, we, we've had to work with some of our growers to actually not cut fruit off. Um, <laughs> there may be one or two every year that were like, okay, seven tons an acre. We got to dial this back to like four and a half. But for a lot of these, it's really trying to make sure that we have a healthy crop out there. So do you think that that's part of the reason why we were seeing these kind of beastly California move ads for a while is because the crop load? I can imagine that might be that, that way, but I, I don't know for sure. But I do know like if, if people are, you know, you know, tweezer farming and getting super precise and bonsaiing like Pinot Noir. And if you try to do that same thing with Merved, boy, you're going to get some, you're going to get some really heavy, really intense wines. And it's already, you know, we're already dealing with a grape that's lending itself that way. So that also may play into our style a lot too, or these higher yields, those higher yields being able to give us more of that, you know, fruit driven versus more of the, more of the beast. So, um, but then I look at a, a vineyard like Rosewood Vineyard. Rosewood Vineyard's the old vine vineyard up in Redwood Valley in Mendocino County. And there's so much virus in that vineyard right now. I mean, we're averaging under like 0.4 tons, 0.3 tons per acre. But we're still able to maintain that freshness. Yes, the weight's different. But man, that nerviness is still there even with that yield. So I don't know. I think, I think there's so much for us to learn. I feel like um, you're asking, I feel like, man, like my, my, my answer to all your questions today will be, man, I don't know. I've got a lot to learn. No, but I think that's the greatness though. Yeah. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that. It's yeah. because I think you went there and you explained this really well in the previous interview. So yeah. I think anyone who hasn't listened to that, maybe it would make more sense if they just heard it from you originally. Okay. But listening to that interview again, it struck me that you didn't try to fit the material to a paradigm. And you didn't go in with a lot of preconceived ideas about how it had to work. And I think that in a grape variety that doesn't really have a defined playbook, which Mouvedra in California doesn't, <laughs> in which the market was really changing um, for what people were looking for from California, at least in certain markets. And I think that in an era of climate change and drought, that having that fresh mind really allowed you to find something that I think you could have spent a whole career ignoring if you had not looked at it that way. And I actually think that that plus the, just the sheer willingness to do the driving and it's a fundamental that you want to put your hands on things and, and taste it for yourself. I think those two things, you know, along with what I think of as just an infinite ability to make promotional personal, <laughs> like an infinite ability to be relatable. I think those are really strengths for you, Thank you. that I draw from you know, that I see and appreciate in you. So I think the fact that you don't know is part of the greatness. 
I mean, it would be different if you said, I don't know and I don't care, right? <laughs> like, it seems like every year you're open to learning. Yeah. Like, I'm on this kick right now where I think that maybe biodynamic wines are so interesting to me because, and I'm not saying yours are, I'm simply saying that it's often said that biodynamic wines are are good because the people are spending so much time on the vine work mm-hmm. that they're in tune with their vine. I think really what it is is that they're looking very closely at the rhythms of nature during a period which I'm convinced personally is going through radical climate change. And so that they're in tune with how these rhythms are changing and not trying to hit the same formula every time. And I think that is the greatness. I think that's why we're seeing real success. Now, of course, there's been some head scratchers. And, you know, everyone is more or less observational, more or less follow through. But to me, having an open mind at this period of time where I fundamentally believe that one of the key parameters is radically changing, mm-hmm. I think that this is actually one of the reasons for the success. Because mm-hmm. I enjoy the wines you make. Let me put it that way. Yeah, thank you. And I, I often think on, as a winemaker, and as someone that obviously has to sell the wines we make for a living, I, I wrestle with sometimes that part of not knowing. Because though we've done this, now, now for the amount of years that we have, you now we've made over 40 you know, different cuvées, you know, when we'd add the vintages together of Mervedra. So we've made a lot, of, you know, probably more than almost anybody in California or maybe more than anyone in California at this point. But to still come at this sometimes like, maybe, um, maybe I sh- should I pretend I know or should I be forceful? And like, you know, I think sometimes it's very easy. Like we listen to a lot of, there are so many experts in the wine industry, um, but then there's sometimes just so much certainty in the wine industry that may also be not based on fact or science or experience and things. So I think sometimes I shoot myself in the foot by <laughs> saying, you know, these things of like, hey, we're, we're learning, we're figuring this out. But it really like at its core, that's if it's if I say anything else, it's totally not true, you know, to, you know. Everything we've done every year is that journey and is trying to get better and better. And I can't really tap somebody, you know, that, you know, that's done it for 40 years next to me and say like, oh, let me watch that. Let me see what you're doing. Talk to me about this, this, and this. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the beautiful part of the journey though. It's this, you know, we're in, we're in deep space. We're in the shuttle by, you know, relatively alone. And like, we're listening to see if, you know, a little satellites out there going that thing they sent out like probably like in 1975 that had like you know sounds of the earth and central park and this that and the other like trying to make contact with something that's out there you know in relation to mervedra in california i think it would be less fun for you if over the other way yeah i'm not saying you wouldn't have pursued it but i think if it the cards have been played where you ended up working at a winery where the playbook was fairly defined Mm. it was set i don't know that it would be so exciting for you and i think that that part of not knowing is actually kind of fun for you? Without a doubt. It's, I mean, for me, though we approach things fairly similar every year as far as what we want to do is, I know I want to make whole cluster more on the gentle extraction, Mervedra. But at that same point, the there is no playbook. I don't have a 60-year history of one property, one estate that has to be you know, continued. And it also seems to me like you take your cues from how things taste in your mouth, like <laughs> whether they're grapes or samples out of barrels or, I mean, I'm being 100% serious, like as opposed to taking the cues from critical establishment or 
I mean, it, it seems so simple to say, but I think it, we've seen plenty of examples in the wine world where it doesn't work out this way. And so I've seen you actually taste something and, and, and make a decision about what's going to happen for the life of that wine based on that taste. And again, I know a lot of people say that. I know. And in fact, probably a lot of people do that. Let's be honest. But I think you're really good at it. It's one of the securities of being small in a way where it's not like I've got 25,000 cases of something that has to be, this is going to fit the target market between 26 and 35 year olds and like Topeka. Like they, they need, like right now it's all about brown sugar flavored Mavedra. If you can do that, like, no, no, no. For us, it really is. I mean, a lot of these plots that we're working with are so small that it's, um, I, I think it's, it's about finding what's right for us and what's right for those sites. I mean, as selfish as it probably would is going to sound when I say this, I mean, we still have to make wine for ourselves. We still have to make wine that we believe in, that we want to drink ourselves, that is what changes our brain and what gets us excited versus what we think will go out there and meet the expectations of the market. 2013, 2016, I mean, I dumped a ton of wine down the drain. I mean, wine I know I could have sold. And, you know, you're sitting there and like, you're flipping over barrels and you're, you know, calculating like, like $50,000, you know, going down the drain and potential, you know, revenue, but it doesn't fit my taste. It's too little in a way to bulk off. I could probably sell it because it's, you know, I didn't like it, but it's probably less messed up than sometimes some other wines I've tried. But at the same point, like it has to come back to like, this is our wine. This is who we are. So you said or I've heard you say that harvest picking is one of the most important decisions you make all year. So what is important when you're approaching that decision? Yeah. I am so psychopathic about sampling and probably maybe in a couple of years, maybe I'll slow down a little. I, I don't know, but it's like, man, I'll go to the same vineyard that's three and a half hours away four times in a week because you're trying to get that rhythm. You're trying to catch, you know, what's right where you've got that combination of of acid and fruit and that where you're realizing you're also looking ahead because, you know, for us, most of the time when we're calling our pick dates, we have to call it about 48 hours in advance. So you're checking the weather, you're checking how fast things are, things moving, you know, 1.25 bricks a week, or are we now looking at 0.75 bricks a week? Are we looking at two and a half? You know, are we going to get crazy inversions that are going to mess things up? Because not only knowing once we pick the fruit, we're going to soak up a little in the winery. And, you know, it's like taking the steak off the, taking the steak off the grill. Like it's going to still keep cooking a little bit. Like it's got to, so I think it's trying to learn that rhythm of every site, every vintage, which can totally get thrown into haywire anyhow with the you know, big change in weather. But it's finding that spot between depth of flavor and that liveliness. And I, I keep going back to chi and life force and having that like lively acids and like maybe explosive like lift that's going on in your palate. But again, with that depth, that gives you that little hint of like, hey, this is where we are. If you're thinking like, wow, Thursday is the day. <laughs> and, you know, if it doesn't come off Friday, that means it's coming off Monday because people aren't going to pick over the weekend. Yeah. What's that like in the actual moment of the driver's seat of that? Yeah, it's, it's logistics or often the the most stressful part of harvest for me where it's trying to arrange trucking bin delivery picking crews 
getting things to the winery, getting things because we've often, you know, I've always been in shared spaces and custom crush facilities, being able to like make sure, okay, we can actually get fruit in this time. I have these tanks reserved. So that there's so much tension, there's so much energy and nervous energy going around those things, but it is, um, it is so challenging. And when you have that thing where you're, you've been pushed back, say, you know, your ideal time was your ideal time was Thursday and now you can't get a crew there till Monday. Then you have to start thinking about, okay, having this fruit be a little bit riper, having this fruit be a little heavier. How am I going to actually make changes in my vinification to address that? So many different things where sometimes it is, okay, is it going to go into a a bigger vessel or a smaller vessel? Like if it's a three ton lot or a two and a half ton lot, can I put that into two 48 S bins and I get those things going outside, get them moving a little faster or keep them inside, get them going a little slower. If our acids are lower than we, what we wanted at pick date, okay, well, not only will we go through fermentation slightly different, but maybe we've got to be much more careful at the press. So maybe instead of going, okay, like let's, let's get all the juice. Like, it's like, okay. And like, we might use basically the lightest red press cycle that we can find. And in that gentle, lower uh, pressure press with that longer cycle, we're going to keep our pHs lower. We're going to keep those acids a little bit higher. We're going to get far less juice per ton. But at that same point, we can keep a freshness to those wines that maybe we would have had at higher volumes of juice at the press if we had picked a few days earlier. So you have to make all these shifts and all these changes. And, you know, we've got, you know, and, you know this year we had 27 different picks and having to try to keep all that in your brain and on a spreadsheet. And, you know, there's, there, there's one part like Rain Man in there that you're trying to like, holy smokes, like, let's try to keep this straight. But those challenges and those shifts and those things that you have to jerry-rig together are part of what makes it incredible. Because there's just so much adrenaline running through your veins at all time. And it's why I think at the end of harvest, most winemakers go into like post-harvest depression. I mean, most of us are just like, it's like, man, like you've been like just poked and prodded and, you know, reacting like at a moment's notice, like with the reptilian brain for like two months. And then all of a sudden it's like, now it's time to check your email and write some bills. And you're like, no, like, so um, yeah, that going back to the original question though, like, with those changes and not being always able to fit everything into your schedule due to logistics, it's where some of the excitement comes, but you have to adapt. So in 2016, you moved where you make the red wines into a different facility. And so I imagine that there was different equipment available. And when you're working with different equipment, what did it make you realize? Oh yeah. So um, I moved everything down to Michael Cruz's facility, Cruz Wine Company in Petaluma. I've been doing whites for a number of years out of Michael's and the sparkling wines that I'd been making. Um, but at that same point, we had totally different equipment to work with. You know, you're used to, if you're a chef, you're used to working in the same kitchen, you got the same burners, you got the same, you know, stuff that you're working with. Everything's in the same spot in the walk-ins, you know, here's where the onions go, here's, and you get used to certain things like that as a winemaker, you know, here's, here's the pumps, here's the punch down tools, here's the different uh, sanitation solutions, here's your clamps and rings. And all of a sudden you go into a new space and it's, though you may have all the tools you need to do the job, you're learning to use different tools and where those different tools live. And it doesn't sound like a lot, um, 
But when you're working at a very high rate and high level of speed and trying to be as efficient and quick as possible, because I need to get this work done so I can get out of here and go sample this vineyard, or I need to be able to, I've just finished going here, here, and here. I want to do this. I want to go home and hold my baby. Um, So there were some challenges that way just for me to learn new things, but the advantages were huge too. I mean, man, one thing, first of all, Michael's press is incredible. Um, I, I love working with that press. I mean, the quality of juice that we get out of there is so fine, so pretty. And we're able to, I feel like, push those yields of the juice up a little bit while still maintaining like this real fineness to them. But then also almost all of Michael's tanks now, he purchased a whole bunch of new concrete uprights, similar to the concrete I was talking about with Eric Fifferling. And so we're using beautiful tanks. We're using like an incredible press. And it just... For me, just the challenges were mostly like trying to figure out like, okay, like if I don't necessarily have that, what does the same job? I'm very prejudiced in favor of concrete tanks for reds, especially. One of the things, having tasted the dirty and rowdy wines in the past, one of the tweaks that I thought could possibly provide a, an extra level of like, wow, would be the use of those. What was really great, and it was, it was a little nerve wracking for me the first time really using them this year was, um, first of all, what they're known for is keeping very steady, very constant temperatures. But it's a fairly low temperature. So, you know, you've got, instead of having fermentations that are, you know, in the mid to high 80s that are cruising along, and maybe they'll spike one day to 90 and they'll drop to 84, and you've got this kind of shift that's going on that, you know, between, you know, maybe a eight degree temperature shift or maybe a six degree temperature shift within, you know, a week, week and a half. These concretes are like, you know, you're monitoring them and it's like, wow, 74, 74, 74, you know, fairly low temperatures, a little bit longer fermentations. Um, and um, especially with us, you know, you start worrying about, okay, like I want my fermentations to start ripping early because again, the way that we're working, I'm nervous of like, I don't want to see higher VAs. I want to see things up and ready to roll. And um, that made me a little nervous with these concretes. But on the flip side, once these things start going, I feel like there is a finesse that was coming out of them because of that low, steady temperature that I wasn't necessarily getting out of stainless steel and definitely not getting out of like a 48S bin. It's this long, constant temperature that the prettiness of wines that I think we made for 16, they all feel like in the weight, almost like Pinot Noir. And it's just like, I mean, there's just really just like saddening elegance that's just like, so long and so textured. And I think that's that combination of that slow, cool temperature uh, in the concrete, but also the way that we worked in the press as well. I was um, having lunch with Foyar, which is not a common experience for me, but it happened one time. (laughs) And uh, he said for him, it's not just that warm vintages give riper fruit. It's also that in a warm vintage, his fermentation length is much shorter. And what I realized in that moment is that at least some of the time, what I'm really drawn to is actually a long ferment and the nuance of that and uh, across a lot of categories, because it's not just him, you know, like also there are properties in Barolo where if it's ripping, that means it's getting less of a contact with the skins, less days, because once the CO2 stops coming up, then the cap sinks, then they take it off the cap. So there's... A lot of examples, actually, and there's a lot of examples where subsequently to that conversation with Foyar, what I realized is that it's not just the elevated fruit ripeness in the vineyard, it's also the length of the fermentation. 
when you're having a shorter ferment on riper fruit, you're double amplifying this effect to give a plush fruit as opposed to the, some of the fine nuance. And I think that this is also one of the reasons, as you just very well explained, that I'm drawn to concrete ferments. It's not just that I like the taste of concrete. <laughs> like, it's not like how people used to like new oak. Because yeah. for a while, I started to worry that that was what was happening. Like, oh, I like the taste of concrete. So I always like Plageol. I always like yeah. Pepe. I was, you know what I mean? Yeah. But in fact, I think what I like is a long ferment. But it's interesting when you say that because I look back on some of wines that we've made and then I look back at some of my favorite wines that I've had that I know that history behind that fermentation. Like our 2013 Alder Spring Chardonnay, it took 11 months to finish fermentation. And it was one of those like nail biting, like, please finish, please finish, please finish. The depth and richness on that, though not on the skins, but just on the lees that entire time. I mean, that, that wine's wild. I mean, it's it got so much depth. It's got so much like character to that. And it's so fulfilling. And then I look back, I mean, one of the greatest California shards I've ever had was the 2004 Selenia uh, Heinz Vineyard. And so Selenia was made by Kevin Kelly, the winemaker I went to work with in 2010. And I think he said that primary fermentation for him took almost two years. It was like 20 months or something like that. And the character and the depth of that wine is just like, I mean, it's, it's unlike anything else I've ever had from California. So it's it just, it's interesting to hear you say that, to actually hear the words that I was saying before and kind of put those things, um, you know, back together. So let me ask you this. What's it like to have made wine before the drought and then after the drought, now that it's been several years of drought? Yeah. And I would still say we're, we're still in a moderate level of stress, but 15, I started getting a little worried because I, I think if we started looking at um, started looking at 12, 13, and 14, there's some great vintages in there. 13 and 14 are kind of like, ah, like there's so much, like I, I love both. The, I like 12. 12 is a little too plush for me. 12 is like a, you know, 12 is like a 2005 or 2007 in terms of the, the wines are very round where 13 and 14 had this nervy edginess to them where I think as we started hitting 13, 14, and 15, these vintages started getting earlier and earlier and earlier. So we started having, you know, stuff that I was picking before in September. Now I'm picking the first week of August and or second week of August. You've shifted forward an entire month. Which I'm still trying to come to grips with that. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That no, seems like a big deal to me. Huge. I mean, absolutely wacky where you're like, holy smokes. Like, you know, picking something on August 10th that you had previously picked on October 2nd. I mean, that's, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, you get to get a scratch your head and say like, what, what is happening in the universe? But we, I think we reached a point where some of that stress for especially that 13 and 14 vintage were made some great wines. I mean, we were able to get like great ripeness and maintain crazy like acid and precision to those wines. But on 15, I think we really started, like you started seeing vines and vineyards that just looked angry i felt like we were stressing them before in the previous two vintages but 15 i mean you just started seeing stuff that just was like wow like we need rain we really need some rain and i think you couple that with the odd flowering the very long flowering that was out there in 15 and then you really i mean you had to go out and really 
both in the vineyard, but also in the winery, really be selective of what's actually going to go into certain wines, into certain barrels and things like that. So with 16, I, I think we were given, you know, with that bit of rain, you know, we were given a little bit of an ease. Um, it was much easier to make some picking decisions this year once you got the fruit, you know, in that balance. But at the same point, we were also managing vigor at the same time and also, you know, looking at ridiculously juicy berries that were, you know, providing pretty but lighter concentration of fruit. So what would you say about Mouvedre? Because earlier you said that you tend to pick it later in the cycle. And I, and I know that you typically pick in Cabernet territory, yep. depending on how ripe somebody wants their Cabernet. So what does that mean for Mouvedre as a grape variety? The, lately there have been some drought-like conditions though, that may have eased a little bit in 16. I think the flavor profile would be very different. I mean, some of these vineyards, I mean, we were back to picking at almost like 2011, which was a very cool year, almost close to 2011, 2012 dates. So 16 through so many puzzles and through so many, like it was like the magic eight ball you're shaking in the vineyard because like my brain says that like these fruit flavors are further developed than I've ever worked with before in this grape variety. But this chemistry of the fruit, it does not lend itself to being picked today. So we really, I think this is a year that I have fully surrendered. I mean, I, I like to say that I do it every year, but like fully surrendered tr to vintage and thought like, if we fight this, we're going to lose no matter what. But like, let's roll with these more ripe flavors and you know, we'll still have the somewhere around the same levels of alcohol that we've always had, you know, moderate levels of alcohol, but we've got to be able to see like what this vintage can do. And I, I think part of that leads to like the, some of the explosiveness and readiness of some of these wines that, you know, we're tasting right now in barrel. Um, I think some of them are going to be very long lived. And I think some of them are going to be kind of in a winemaker or a wine seller's dream. Like, man, like we're going to release it. You should drink it. And then you should buy another one. <laughs> like, but like, so I think we're going to have a weird mix of in 15 was a little this way too. We'll have a mix of wines for the seller and wines for right now. When you were here before, we talked about Mouvet and we talked about Petit Syrah and Semillon. Yeah, absolutely. When we first started making, vinifying Mourvedre in the way that we do, you know, everyone said, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. It's going to be heavier. It's going to be darker. It's going to be disaster. And fortunately, it was not. So we're like, hey, you know, back in 2012, let's try that with Petit Syrah. We can do the same thing. Oh, and it, they should have just told me that about Petit Syrah and not about Mourvedre. I think we made beautiful petite syrahs, and I, I hope we still do. But we realized, you know, it, it does not take to the the light, fresh, more elegant uh, style that we try to make with Mervedra. I think still think we make relatively light petite syrahs. I mean, they're usually moderate in alcohol. They're there's freshness. They're higher in acidity, but they're weighty wines of depth. And it really, I think, again, gives us something to scratch our brain with to say, like, you know what, let's take a totally different path of exploration here. We've worked with some extended maceration now in Petit Syrahs. All of them are whole cluster, and that's more or less, again, out of laziness. <laughs> you know, you don't, like, why set up the distemmer if you don't have to? Um, but I think we've been able to start working and experimenting with it. And even though it's, we just finished our fourth vintage with Petit Syrah, there's still so much to learn and I am less confident talking about its attributes on soil and temperature and elevation than I am, say, with Merved. But it's like another piece to keep racking and scratching the brain with. I just think there's so much potential for it. And 
on a totally greedy side of being a winemaker, the plant material that's available to us with the vine age that's out there at the price that is being offered to us, it's kind of a no-brainer. If it were Cabernet, if it were Merlot, if it's anything else, even Merved or Grenache, it would be four times more expensive, five times more expensive. So it's something that you're like, man, we, we got to do this. So what do you have to be careful of with Petit Syrah in terms of vinification? Like, is it more reductive? Or? Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it can be super reductive. The other thing though, I think even before you get to vinification, it's highly susceptible to mold and rot, mildew. You get really tight clusters, really tight bunches. Some of the vineyards almost look like little hand grenades of like coastal Pinot Noir, but yet they're you know, really powerful, tannic, you know, little bombs that you've got. So I think in the vineyard, you're constantly looking for any signs of mold and rot. But then on in the winery side, you know, for us, I think especially because we do whole cluster, we know we're going to have tannin off the bat. You know, whether we're partially carbonicing this or not, tannin will be there. Dark flavors will be there. So I think we're always conscious of being gentle with it. But at that same point, why we've done some extended maceration on petite, you know, starting last year, was because the wines became so, so tannic that we were like, oh my God, like we actually have to start changing the structure tannically of these wines. They're already saturated. So let's try to get them a little bit smoother, try to get these chains a little bit longer, try to actually soften. <laughs> it sounds strange with extended maceration that you're softening things but to try to change that structure and that elegance of those tannins before getting it into barrel. So I, I think we, we have to be more cautious of it. Merved's really reductive too, so I feel like we're, we don't have to be more cautious of Petit than Merved, but we, we do know that we are going to lose like those bright floral fruit-driven aromatics are just at a much deeper tone, a much lower octave. And I think you just have to be really careful that you don't go from like, you know, you, that you don't want boo, you're looking for her and then you get, you know, it's, you, you need to have consciousness of like where you're going in the, the fermentation. It seems like when we've looked at Petit Syrah vines in the past, like the vigor seems so much less than Mouvedra. Yeah. And I think part of that, there's definitely less vigor on a lot of the sites, but also because a lot of the sites we've looked at have been old, there's also a lot of virus. There's also a lot of disease out there. So a lot of those vines are kind of beat to crap. Which in a way, um, it's not really good for the vines, but it's often good for our style of winemaking because we're picking things like, like our 2014 Fred and Dora's Petit Syrah. We did not pick that wine early. The fruit's basically shriveling and starting to like, it is very ripe on the vine at like 21.8 bricks. And, and also we started getting some mold in the vineyards. So we wanted to get that off. That finished vinification at 11.9% alcohol. Um, and that is not necessarily a a trait of Petit Syrah, for instance, but it's more a trait of that vineyard being like in decline and like just struggling to produce sugars. So I, I think with the younger plant material, like the one that we're using in St. Helena now, which is 44 years old, that is much more vigorous. Um, the canopy is much healthier. We were able to get much more hang time on there. And if you were to taste that next to the two old vine sites, it's a totally different wine. Um, it's really fancy. Like it really is like, you're like, man, like I'm gonna get on my dinner coat, gonna like white on white, like white tie service. Because uh, under 12 alcohol is something that, you know, comes up on your labels now and again. It does. And I usually, I, I always tell people like that was a wine that I poured the 2014 Fred and Dora's Vineyard 
before we released it this winter in uh, late January, early February in France at La Dive. And I also just poured it at Raw Festival and a lot of here in New York. And a lot of people were asking me, and they're looking at the label, I'm like, oh my God, 11.9, that's great. And I got to be honest at the same point, I'm like, it's not on purpose. Like that's like, that was not a conscious effort to do that. Like that fruit came off when it had to, had to come off. And hopefully we were kind enough through it in its vinification to get it to a drinkable state. And at the same time, since we whole cluster open top everything, often we blow off a lot of alcohol too uh, during fermentation. So um, I think with all of those low alcohols, like I think same thing like 2013 Skinner uh, White Oak Flats was like 11.2 or something like that. And that's just when that fruit had to come off. Like there, we, there was no other choice. And I, I think it was beautiful enough to release at that low alcohol, but it was not an intentional like, man, we're going to nail it. 11.5 again. <laughs> Got it. Um, so yeah, it's, um, and, and I've also made wines at 14%, like the 2012 Shake Ridge is at 14%. You've mentioned whole cluster a few times in this conversation. And I think one of the times that whole cluster comes up as an interesting aspect for me is in your approach to Merlot, because I feel like you evolved a little bit on that. We made Merlot for the first time in 2015 and out of Alder Springs. Every year, Stu from Alder Springs uh, for the past several years has been getting together all the producers that make wine from Alder Springs. Most of the bottles that have ever been made from Alder Springs um, gets them lined up. And it's also a way for him to like you know, meet new winemaker, potential winemaking clients and things. And every year, the wine that's always stood out to me has been a 1999 or 2001 Whitethorn Cab Merlot blend. I mean, it, it's gorgeous. It's so structured. It's so elegant. It is so like old school California at its greatest style, like where it's like, you know, you've got all that Sauvignon that's with it. You've got all that, the right green flavors, but also that right core of like cedar and, you know, all those beautiful cab notes that kind of go straight from front to end. And a lot of that wine's Merlot. And I remember talking with Stu about it and he was like, yeah, you should look at the vines. And their first vines planted in the early nineties at Alder Springs. But when we picked that fruit last year, it was the first time I probably, you know, kind of tucked my tail between you know my legs a little bit and I destemmed it all as that. And I made the little bit of cab and, and I destemmed it because part of my, in the back of my brain was like, I had never had at that point, I couldn't remember me ever having a whole cluster Bordeaux variety wine, whether from California or anywhere else that I really loved, that I thought it made the wine better. And I liked that Merlot a lot. And I like the cab that we made a lot. And they're still sitting in barrel. And we'll do something with them at some point, but we'll find that out. Um, but then I started thinking, like shortly after vinification, I started thinking that, oh, you know, I think, and I, I couldn't find all the information on it, but like, like the 2002 Radicon Merlot, um, you know, I don't know a hundred percent if that's a hundred percent a whole cluster, but you're like, wow, that has the texture of having a lot of stem influence to it. And when we made it this year, um, when it came time to do it again, we did the wine. We, we still my tail between my legs a little bit, the fruit's really expensive, but worth it. We did 50% whole cluster. That lot's incredible. Like it is so like, we've got that like beautiful essence of that Merlot fruit that's coming through. And then that kind of tapestry interwoven, like, you know, almost needlepoint stitching tannin that's going through it due to the stem inclusion. It's really like, it is a, it's an electric wine. I, I hope it remains that way all the way into bottle. But right now, it, I, I really am going in the back of my mind and being like, okay, so 2016 is coming. 2016 is going to be a hundred percent whole cluster. Um, it is very odd for me to not like 
dive headfirst into something like, oh, we're just going to whole cluster it. Um, I was a little nervous both that I had not experienced something, but also that price, the, the price of that fruit, it, like it has to be, like it, it's not something that I, I can really go to the seller and like, okay, we're dumping these three barrels because it sucks. Like, no, it's like, it's like a mortgage payment or like for months and months and months. So it's, um, yes. Yeah, I think that'll be an interesting evolution there and to keep working with that. Do you find a different taste from stems from different red grape varieties? Like, have you encountered that the stems lend something different? Yeah, the the one <laughs> the one that I um, I really feel like um, maybe doesn't need to be whole cluster, or maybe I just need to think about it differently. Um, we also made a little Malbec last year, and we whole clustered that because I'm like, yeah, man, Malbec needs whole cluster, and man, their stems don't taste very good. <laughs> That was a wine that was like, ah, oh, man, maybe like that in hindsight, like the great thing about this experimentation is that uh, some of these things on the side is that it's experimentation. It's great when they work out. I'm not going to say that one worked out too well. Like the stems were way too bitter. The Malbec on its own was such a, most people don't realize, but it can be such a big, dark, black flavored. Like, I mean, I feel like it's the time we've worked with it and from other people I've spoken with that have worked with it. Um, it does have that capability of being even more intense than like Petit Syrah. That's I mean, amazing. Obviously, you can make it in a very soft and gentle style, but it can also lend itself to being quite intense. And the one shot that we made or attempted with it, plus the whole cluster, oh, that is, um, it's, it's it's a hard wine. It's um, maybe like, that might be like my like, you know, Grand Reserva or something like that, that is just going to hang out for a couple of years. But I, I think there's potential for it. Like that, that would be a, that, that is a grape I would like to get some revenge on. Like, or at least to like, to not be beaten by. I like to feel like, okay, I'm not going to just walk away. But at the same point, we only have, I only have so much bandwidth. You know, we did work a little bit this year with Syrah. I did work a tiny bit with Grenache. And who knows, maybe we'll even look at, you know, part of it is we're running out of Mervedra to work with in California that I think is farmed organically or hyper-consciously. And that is in a spot that I think that might be really good to work with. So part of these little experiments at the same time are also throwing out like a little bit of self-defense, um, knowing that like, hey, we might, might need to start building the walls because like, you know, here come the troops coming in. But like, what if we did need to make a little bit more wine if one of our vineyards or a couple of our vineyards get purchased? Well, let's start playing with some of these things so we at least get familiar with them. And I, man, that Grenache and Syrah is... Those are two grape varieties that took well to at least what we tried working with them with this year. And we'll look at throwing a little bit of Merved in there and maybe trying to do like a Shaloni VA GSM. And at the same time, you started up another project. In 2015, my wife and I started a little side project um, called Clothing Optional Wine. And because um, I like to get nude. No, no. Um, it's, uh, it's something that... Um, most people don't know this about my wife, but she has a very hard time drinking red wines. Um, she has really bad histamine allergies, like she's allergic to shrimp, lobster, you know, pretty much any creepy crawly, you know, shellfish, like EpiPen allergic. But when she consumes reds, she also starts getting hives and starts getting itchy and really unable to drink any of the reds that we produce. So we wanted to do something that was on the side that, first of all, was focused on whites. And at the same point, too, that with the birth of our daughter, that was something that, hey, here's a little side project that, I mean, th th that's really all about, you know, my wife, 
Maple, our daughter, and I, and really planning for her future. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's daycare, it's you know, you know, tuition, it's retirement, it's all these things. But it's really something that we do purely for her. And um, fifteen was the first year we made a huge um, quantity of entirely one barrel of muscat, which was incidentally the first grape variety that we wanted to start dirty and rowdy with. Um, but the vineyard had gotten fried with sunburn. We were supposed to make get a little over a ton, but the yields were really small last year in this vineyard. So we got a whopping one barrel of muscat. Um, we do have a few more barrels this year of muscat. And then we also were able to pick some 43-year-old Riesling from an incredible site up in Mendocino. And the real difference besides just being whites for clothing optional and being just kind of Kate and my side project with, you know, to really focus on kind of the future of our daughter, the goal with all the wines, um, and we'll see if we actually achieve the goal, but the goal of all the wines is also to be um, bottled without sulfites. So we want these wines to be something that maybe like these aren't probably aren't going to be wines for the seller. You know, they're going to be wines that do, you know, really have like immediate enjoyment, freshness and things. Because I do, I though Dirty and Rowdy, we were made as minimally as possible. All of the wines except the sparklings have always seen small to moderate levels of SO2. And for clothing optional, I mean, we enjoy so many like Sansouf wines. And it's something that we have a lot of at the house. And it, for us, it was a chance to, you know, hey, like this is on such a small scale that I'm not worrying about anything. I'm damaging the brand to dirty and rowdy or getting, you know, people like, oh, well, I had this dirty and rowdy and it was like super fresh. And this one was a little bit more subdued or, you know, seemed a little more oxidative or whatnot. So it gives us a playground to do something that's, you know, truly different and both in grape varieties, but also in things that we do in the cellar as well. How have you seen that California scene evolve in general? I mean, I feel like you're in contact with so much of that scene through social connections, dealing with so many different vineyards in so many different parts of the state, so many different people that you share vineyards with, talking to them, people you buy fruit from. So, I mean, what in the space of time that you've been there, because essentially you loaded up the car, yeah. got over there with not a whole lot, you know, worked for Murphy Good, worked for Kevin, worked for Fela, worked for Kathy Corson, then jumped into your own thing. In, in that time, since you did that, because we should all say you didn't go to UCD, you didn't yeah. take the academic route, you didn't come from a family of winemakers. What have you seen in California that's changed that has made it harder or easier for people like you? I think if we were to start this in 2016, it would be a lot harder for us to start today than it was in 2010. I think in 2010, um, we were at a point where Things were just starting to get exciting about you know, newer producers in California. You know, all of a sudden there was this wave. I mean, there were folks like Kevin Kelly. There were folks like Arnett Roberts. There's folks like Wingap. Um, Rhyme hadn't even like released wines yet, but there's only say like maybe five or six people that were of this kind of, you know, whatever iteration you want to call it, like California 2.0, 2.5, 3.0, or whatever we are in this generation of younger California producers. We were able to get in early on that wave. Maybe there were only 20 of us doing something or 15 of us doing something similar, if even that many in 2010. Now I think there's so many small producers, which is a great thing in California, but that there's so many small producers still competing for if the market hasn't grown, you know, 300%, the amount of producers has grown 300%. Man, I, I, I look back to, it's not just the amount of folks, but it's the type of soils that are out there or the vineyards that are available. It was much easier, I think, to work with great vineyards and make connections back then 
than it is now. We're now like, oh, you want to work with Shakeridge Fruit? Well, who do you know? You know, who can you leapfrog around or who like, I mean, there's, there's a high demand for a lot of these sites that were previously unknown. So I think that's a huge difference. Those of us that were there you know, previously, a lot of us have grown. I mean, we started at 50 cases, you know, now we'll be over, you know, 3,500 cases. So we have, you know, increased production. And I think it's just much more challenging to get distribution, much more challenging to get attention, much more challenging to get good vineyard sites now than it probably was when we started. Not that it was easy, but um, there's a lot more competition. But that being said, there's still great things coming out and there's still like, I think everyone has an incredible opportunity to, um, you know, California is so vast. There's so many incredible areas that either are undiscovered and unplanted or still neglected. You know, the folks like say like living wine collectives, the stuff that they're doing like out of Manton, you know, AVA, which, you know, we, 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 <laughs> that, that's, that's out there, but people are making great wine from there. There's still so much potential, but I think there's just more of us now you know, fighting for, you know, maybe, maybe the market's doubled, but there's three times the amount of producers. One of the things that I've recognized about you over time is that how focused you are, which I think isn't the first word that a lot of people throw around about you, because I think you're really easygoing and you try to make other people feel comfortable. So that drive and focus isn't something that people necessarily notice, but when you spend time with you, it's clear that there, it's really there. So what is it that you want to achieve in the next five, 10 years? I mean, what's the goal? Cause I know that you have it. <laughs> so what is it? Yeah. I, I think for us, that recognition that it doesn't have to be Pinot Noir, it doesn't have to be Chardonnay, it doesn't have to be Cabernet, that Mervedra is not this just blending varietal that's out there. It's not just this thing capable of, you know, unruly savage wines. It can be a wine. It can be a grape varietal that is capable of unbelievable expression, unbelievable elegance, unbelievable purity, and hopefully more than anything, like in all of that, it delivers like an, an incredible amount of joy and purity. And I think for us working with Mervedra, it's such a weird thing, but I, I always, I struggle in writing our tasting notes to our mailing list that I'm always like, you know, joyous, pure, joyous, rapturous. Like, and these are things we don't associate necessarily with this grape variety. But yet it is like, it is how I identify with them. It is like where I think, you know, there's a kindred spirit or where I you know if, if me and this piece of plant material can see eye to eye, it is like in finding this piece of like happiness that this is able to achieve in a spot that is previously forgotten and something or previously neglected. If that's my goal in the next five to 10 years, it is to just get keep getting deeper and deeper into what we're doing and hopefully getting more and more people to realize that this lesser known variety or lesser used variety is capable of just as much greatness as anything else in California. Hardy Wallace is trying to confound preconceptions of where happiness is. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks so much. Hardy Wallace of Dirty and Rowdy and also Clothing Optional, Two Wineries in California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com. 
which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.